This is All the Cool Parts number 28 for Friday, August 5th, 2011. Hey everybody, welcome to All the Cool Parts number 28. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and this week we're doing another in our series of Laureate CDs put out by the Naxos Classical Label. This show is a little special. Um, We've done, I don't know, three or four of these already, and in addition to having our co-host, our regular co-host for this series, Jonathan Culp, we have the guitarist that recorded the CD, and he's a return guest. Our guest is Kevin Gallagher, and he first appeared on episode six when we were talking about his group, Electric Company. And we'll be talking about him and his playing in a much different capacity today. everybody to this episode of all the cool parts and we're here uh we have a return guest kevin gallagher with us today what's up kevin hi nice to see or nice to hear you again at least yeah nice to have you back and we have as always our co-host jonathan culp what's up john hey how's it going good um this is our i don't know how many of these laureate things have we done now Four or five? Um, maybe four, maybe five. I don't really remember. Yeah. It's been a few. Well, we have um, on our show Kevin Gallier, who was the winner of uh, the, your CD came about from the Targa competition. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, and it wasn't, was this uh, not part of the uh, GFA prize when you won that? No, the, at that point, I don't even know if Nexus, I'm sure Nexus was around, but I'm not sure they were doing this sort of, um, you know, tie-in with competitions at that point. So, no, the GFA, there was no uh, there was no CD price. I don't know when they started that. I think it was much later in the 90s. Okay. Well, it must have been by 96, because Kostelnik's was in 96. 
Oh, okay. So and, then uh, not, not so much later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know. I, I remember buying Naxo CDs in about 1988-89, but of course they had nothing to do with the competition way back then. So they've been around a good while. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, so this was part of this Tariga prize, or was it just something separate? No, no. Uh, part of the first prize was um, to do a, a CD, and um, I uh, was allowed to pretty much record whatever, whatever I wanted, and I had heard, I went and listened to... Uh, I mean, I have a, a sort of a background also in, in production and recording, so I listened to the kind of room they were using, and that's why I decided to choose. That was one of the reasons why I decided to choose early music because I thought the room sort of fitted that style the best. You know, the, the loop recordings I heard from them always seemed to be um, beautifully dressed in this nice uh, church reverb, and uh, so so we decided to go with uh, Renaissance and Baroque music. Yeah, and you know, I was going to mention that I think your choice of repertoire here kind of makes this CD stand out among a lot of the other Laureate CDs because what usually ends up happening is uh, usually these CDs are GFA winners and uh, they record this CD directly coming off of their GFA win. Sure. And, uh, you know, the Renaissance pieces, they're so delicate and so lovely and you know the counterpoint is so supple and all that stuff but it's it's usually not pieces that people pick for competition I, yeah so, in fact i don't think any of the pieces i recorded were ones that i played in the competition i don't think any any of the ones were uh were from from you from the competition itself yeah so i mean you don't really uh we haven't had this repertoire from uh this series yet so i was really happy to um you know, to have this repertoire that we can present. And of course I have a special place in my heart for, uh, Renaissance music. So, um, yeah, me too. yeah we're going to definitely get into that. But, um, first I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, we've, we've uh, done several of these Laureate episodes. Like I said, we've never actually had the guitarist on, um, that recorded the CD. So oh. I wanted to ask you, I don't know, just about your experience at the Targa competition. I know that you were the, and I, perhaps still the only American to ever win that competition. I, I don't know if that's true anymore. It's been a while. Um, at that time, it was it was the case. I'm not sure if that's the case anymore. Yeah. Well, can you just sort of talk about your experience there and your reception, you know, among the Spanish and yeah. Um, well, it was 97 and, uh, it was the, in the summer, it was, it was in August. In fact, it was during the time when, uh, Princess Diana, Diana got killed. I remember being at the Spanish hotel and the news bulletins came out and, uh, I had practiced, um, for about two months for the competition, learned the repertoire. Actually, I really, I really liked the target competition, the concept of it, which is, um, they choose uh, about 25% of the repertoire that you have to play, and everybody has to play the same repertoire, which to me is so obvious. You know, like that's that's how you, it's it's a much easier way to judge. Yeah. You know, if someone is is seriously interpreting one work or another, 
you get to hear 30 people do the same piece. So, so I really liked the way it was set up and, um, and I liked the repertoire that they chose. And so for me, it was a, it was a no brainer to go. I had the time and, and I was happy to practice the music. Um, as far as being there, um, I mean, Spain is a wonderful place. I, I'd love to retire there. It's just, it's, I can't really explain it other than it feels like a European Arabic country. And uh, it's just, a, it's a very kind of old school, um, sort of dirty and uh, very honest, you know, it's just hard to explain. And they love the guitar. I mean, they know the guitar the way people in America know you know, singers on American Idol, they can, they can tell, you know, if someone plays well or is playing sort of good, but not really some, some parts, they can really tell. And so, uh, you know, it, it's really sort of a home away from home. And I had, a, I had a great time there and, uh, enjoyed myself immensely, you know, and I was really lucky that I played well. I, I mean, people, the people that were there were really high caliber and I, I had a couple of good days, you know, I'm sorry, Kevin. Um, what city was it in in Spain? It was in Benicassim, which is I I think it's the birthplace of Francisco Tarraga, and the guy who runs it is like Tarraga's great great grand uh, um, uh, grandson, I guess. It's either great grandson, okay. great grandson. Yeah, must be great great. I I would think, unless he's super old. No, he's probably like in his sixties at that time. Okay. Yeah. Where what big city is that close to? Um, it's close to the coast. I don't think it's by any really large city. It's close to the. It's right by the beach. In fact, the night after I won, me and a bunch of Brits went and skinny dipped in the Mediterranean, which was awesome. Sweet. <laughs> so was it down on the southern coast then? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful there. I spent about three weeks in Spain. In 1995, I, I sold a guitar and used the money to go to Spain and just yeah. by myself and traveled around to Barcelona and Madrid and spent a week down in Malaga, which is down on the southern coast. Right. Yeah. I had the time of my life. It was yeah, so no, fun. Yeah, I, I tell guitar players, you know, people that come to us, you know, take a trip to Spain. It's really important. It's, it's really kind of the birthplace. And it's really cool to just be in the atmosphere of where people really – understand you know the instrument and and really appreciate what what guitars do yeah and one of the fun things i did while i was there at, in uh, granada uh walking up the hill to the alhambra i stopped in a guitar maker's shop and bought a guitar mm-hmm. from the guy so there was a guy in austin who had given me 500 bucks and said buy me a guitar while you're there <laughs> and so i i got a guitar from this builder right at the foot of the Alhambra for, I think, it was about 400 American dollars or so. But right. it was, you know, a caliber of guitar that you would have to pay at least a 1000 bucks to get um, over here. So it, yeah. it, it was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a magical place. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And um, about your re- actual recording this CD, um you said that you sort of chose the repertoire around this space. I mean, can you tell us exactly, you know, where it was recorded and what the experience was like? Sort of, I'm assuming this was like your first kind of recording for a major label. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, I had done recording before that, but always in studios, you know, with uh, sort of 
reverb added. And um, when I got to Toronto, I mean, I had decided on the repertoire um, partly because I was just really like in love with the music at that time. And then also, yeah, it was just the, the, the sounds of those recordings. I could tell the, the, the reverb would sort of work with this idea. Um, and the, the church was huge. It was cavernous, you know, but it sounded, um, it had a real warmth to it. And I could, I could kind of feel the vibration of the room coming back at me. You know, I could tell the guitar sounded good, you know, and I knew once we set up the mics properly, I, I, I had a feeling it was going to sound really good. Was this a uh, recording done by Bonnie and Norbert? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Bonnie both. Yeah, Norbert and Bonnie, they they were there for both of them they were there for like the first two days. And then Bonnie uh took over the rest of the recording. Norbert Norbert was there just in case there was any like serious problems, you know, with right. the, the space or, or uh you know, which is in the equipment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just for the listener's sake, can you guys explain who Bonnie and Norbert are? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Bonnie and Norbert Kraft. Uh, Norbert's actually an excellent guitarist, and Bonnie is uh, a a fantastic harpsichordist. Mm -hmm. Um, But they uh, are generally the producers of uh, a lot of Naxos CDs at this point. And they engineer them, and they edit them, and uh, they're they're, uh, heavily involved in hundreds and hundreds of, of those Naxos albums, not just guitar. No, no, I, I've, uh, I had a, a colleague of mine who's a pianist, one of the best young pianists in the world, Alexander Dosin. Mm-hmm. I uh, put him in touch with um, Bonnie and Norbert because uh, he was interested in recording, and they, um, what they did, they engineered a CD for him at his expense uh, because it wasn't repertoire they were interested in. But they, you know, they got to know him and were so impressed with him that very soon Naxos invited him to record. Like the complete works of, um, oh man, I can't remember who one of these, uh, some Russian composer, I think. Right. And yeah. They had him do a recording of the Franz Liszt uh, Verdi opera paraphrases for piano, and uh, okay. so they they do piano, they do guitar, all all kinds of recordings, basically like yeah. all the American recordings, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they're they're very good at what they do. Yeah, and you know, I gotta say. Um, both of them were so warm and encouraging and I mean it was uh, it was really easy to play for them which is a, sometimes a hard thing with producing yeah. I remember being a kid being in like rock studios you know and sometimes the, the people recording were really jerks you know and yeah. it's like it's very hard to play well when you f- you're feeling animosity toward you know either your group or you know the fact that you have to take do another take very hard and yet i didn't yeah. with them it was a very easy very enjoyable experience and i i that's really what sort of comes out in the playing is is really my comfort i'm very comfortable mm-hmm. i was very comfortable recording for them i was i was concerned because you know recording can be very stressful but i wasn't concerned at all i'm curious about the you know the repertoire you chose uh i mean we've mentioned a couple of times that it's not really typical um, competition repertoire. I mean, you're hard. You're not going to hear somebody play Tarleton's Resurrection at the <laughs> GFA. But um, I, I'm curious. What I mean, it would be easy to say, "Oh, that's easy repertoire," um, mm-hmm. and that may or may not be a fair thing to say. How do you 
I mean, do you just see this is great music and I want to just play it as beautifully as I can? Or, or what, what difficulties lie in playing music of this sort? Um, you know, I didn't want the whole album to be a virtuoso type of album. I wanted, I actually, I was kind of, when I was thinking about it, I really wanted the album to have um, some breathing space, which uh, I, I noticed in, in, like, sometimes I'll pick up a recording of someone playing Bach, and it's all heavy repertoire by Bach. And it's, it's just, there's just no breathing space for the listener. There's no breaks, you know? And so I was... I was wanting to have some music which was simpler and yet had beautiful atmosphere just just to enjoy the kind of the sounds of the the piece not not to try to prove that you know okay I can do the Goldberg variations or, or you know whatever whatever people want to do is fine but for me it was uh, it was more about kind of the general I wanted to come up with a, a number of different atmospheres within this style and one of the atmospheres was sort of like, you know, easier, lovely, lyrical music, because I think mm-hmm. some of that music is just so gorgeous. Um, but also, uh, there's another thing I was going to say about that, if I can remember. Well, the idea of playing music from the Renaissance in general, some of the best r- repertoire is is music that is shorter and simpler, you know? And as far as the guitar is concerned, I, I like somewhat shorter pieces. I, I, I mean, I don't mind longer pieces as well, but uh, again, just, just in terms of flow of an album, I don't want everything to be grandiose. That's, that's often a, a case, you know, when people get uh, through competitions, they, they sort of feel like, okay, I have to do, you know, large repertoire because that's what everybody's doing. And, you know, it's a more professional, I mean, you'll hear this a lot from people. It's a more professional kind of recording. That's fine. It, it, but in terms of my heart, my heart just wasn't there. I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do all Bach Lute Suites or whatever. I just, mm-hmm. I wanted to do a mix of things that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And I well, can, uh, I can say something to that too. Um, Cause I spent some years uh, studying Renaissance Lute and um, you know, th- this music can be, sort of deceptively simple. Um, you know, it's all based really in vocal music. Yeah. Um, the counterpoint is so delicate and so close together and you have to keep the lines so separated and so shaped. And so, you, you know, to get them to come out right and to get them to, to sing and it, it can be very difficult to play this repertoire right. You know, maybe not as difficult to play it um, kind of crappily, but <laughs> but to play it right, you know, it's it can yeah. be very difficult. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I really admire, I've always kind of admired Segovia in that, you know, he um, would play big pieces, but then he put out albums of like source studies, you know, and I always thought that was kind of cool. Like the idea of um, the guitar is beautiful and this music is beautiful and this is what I'm going to do and this is what I feel like doing and, you know, and I don't really care if people like it or not. <laughs> you know, right on. Some, some people are going to hear the album. Some guitarists might hear that album and say, "Well, why is he playing this?" And some people are going to hear that album and say, "Oh, wow, this is really." They'll really hear it. You know, it depends on how you're, uh, what state of mind you're coming from. I would say. Now, um, 
you, I mean, everyone knows you're a, an excellent guitarist. You can't win GFA and, and the Tariga competition without it. But I, I'm curious, after recording this CD and having, you know, the repertoire that we've just been discussing, did you get any kind of negative reaction from colleagues and peers and whatnot from that? I, actually, no. No. Okay. Um, I, think, I think people, certainly people that know me, I mean, I don't know what is posted in, anonymously, you know, on the Internet about it. Right. But... Um, people that know me, uh, you know, kind of know my background as being, you know, from the rock and, and uh, steel string kind of world. And in a way, and this is what I wanted to say before, actually, um, in terms of choosing the repertoire, this album was a, a sort of album that I wanted it, I wanted it to be a sort of album that you could give to somebody that doesn't understand classical music and they still really get it. Yeah, that's, I, I and could so give it to my dad, part, right? <laughs> yeah, it's part of the the reason for some of the repertoire to be um, a little simpler because it was sort of it's sort of influenced by my steel string and rock playing, which that kind of music was simpler and yet very profound in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and um, it, sometimes I refer to that album as sort of jokingly as my steel string album because in in some ways it's it's sort of very influenced by uh sort of a michael hedges and uh uh alex degrassi almost type of playing not exactly but if you know those players there's a certain sound to their playing which is sort of influenced uh my playing of uh baroque music and renaissance music and frankly when I hear really good Baroque and Renaissance music players, I'm thinking somebody like Rob McKillop, who plays Baroque guitar and lute. They have much more, in my opinion, relation to a folk player and rock players than they do to kind of a, a more romantic uh, style of playing. Certainly the Baroque guitar players are strumming chords and adding notes very freely the way a steel string player would in a, in a sort of a rock band, you know? Um, and so there's a lot of ties for me in terms of my psyche. There's a lot of ties to this music, to my earlier um, style of playing. Cool. Sort okay. of hidden, but it's there. It's sort of hidden, but it's there. Um, I was reading in your blog yesterday about, uh, you know, I watched some of the videos there and everything, but one of the interesting posts was the one about the Mendelssohn Octet and mm. uh, how you were... Uh, just fascinated by that piece. I can I can relate. I love that piece ever since I first heard it when I was about maybe twenty years old. Oh yeah. And uh, it's I've also been struck by the fact that man, a sixteen year old kid wrote this piece, and it it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm wondering how um, that kind of uh, I don't know interest in or or you know, listening experience or whatever affects your performance as a guitarist. Um. If at all, I mean, when I when I hear a piece like the Medicine Octet, I mean, I hear this just overwhelming flow of of just joy, you know, and excitement about music, and that's really what turns me on, you know. I mean, and and of course the players have to play it that way too, and the recordings that I really like, um, the players are are sound like they're just having a really good time. I tend not to listen to a lot of players that sound like they work things out. And I don't tend to play things that way myself. I don't find that particularly interesting. Although I went through a period where I did plan a lot of my playing. I think a lot of students sort of need to do that for a while until they can kind of like let go of that. 
but um but that's that's in terms of like the kind of music I listen to, I listen to a lot of players that just really sound like they're going for it. Some of them play technically accurately, some of them don't. A lot of them are older players, uh, guitarists, violinists, uh, pianists, because the imagination is just it's it's so much freer than what I hear among a lot of younger players. Although that's that's changing. A lot of people are are starting to understand that. Music and music needs to, or it doesn't need to be, but it, it, it the freedom in classical music is um, very much a reality in the older players, and I think people are starting to really get that again. Mm-hmm. And this album, you know, a lot of the ornaments and things were sort of on the spot, you know, and Bonnie would say, "Okay, do it again," you know, and I would do it differently, and then a third time, "Okay, try it," you know, and I and I would just kind of let myself sort of experiment on stage because I was comfortable with the music and, and with the experience of recording. And uh, and she was like, yeah, that's great. We'll keep that, you know, and eh, those ornaments, maybe they're not as tasteful. And so, you know, she helped a lot with um, straightening out what, what the recording came out as. That's one of the great things about this repertoire. You can be a little bit free with it. You're not so, you know, tied to the page. You know. Yeah, yeah, I know it's it's really true. That's what I mean by it being a little bit more like a folk or a rock experience mm-hmm. in a way, but but not in a way most people would perceive. Yeah. Well, um, I don't. Is there anything else you want to ask him, John, before we get to the music? What? No. I, why don't we just uh, get to some of these tracks? Okay. So we're going to start with uh, an excerpt from Canción del Emperador. Mm-hmm. Or, um, the song of the emperor, emperor's song, um, by Luis de Narvaez, um, who I guess we we don't really have um, a solid birth date for him, but he was sort of no. flourishing from 1526 to 1549, right. and uh, a little bit of background on him. Um, his best known collection of works is called uh, Los Seis Libros del Delfín. Um, and this contains the earliest known sets of variations, um, which I think is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, this particular piece is uh, an arrangement of Josquin Dupre's Mille Regrets, mm-hmm. uh, which yes. apparently was uh, Charles V's favorite piece. I mean, this is kind of like if you were the king, you know, back in the 16th century, this is kind of your record player, right? So you like a piece of music and um, it's for choir and you have a guitar player on staff basically and you, you know, tell them to make an arrangement of it so you can hear it whenever you want, basically, I think. <laughs> it's probably, like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, any, any Anything about this piece? No, I just always really liked it. I always liked hearing, uh, you know, people play it and I just decided I would I would put it on the album. I thought it was just too obviously lovely not to put on, so I put it on. Yeah. John? Oh, it's, it's a beautiful piece, and uh, one of the things that struck me the most forcibly when I listened to it again after, I, I don't think I'd listened to it in many years, but um, the very last cadence at the end is so beautiful. It's this modal cadence. Uh, you know, it, it strikes you oddly if you're used to hearing tonal cadences all the time. And uh, it's it's really very touching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yet another thing I love about this music is, you know, this is a time in uh, musical history before tonality was really codified. So you get all these sort of 
strange modalities and cadences and uh, things just sort of a lot of times work out in different ways than you're expecting. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Sort of the Wild West of uh, music for a while. <laughs> right, exactly. Whatever worked. And, uh, yeah, and uh, Narvaez was a vihuela player. Now, um, vihuela was uh, kind of the real precursor of the guitar. I mean, a lot more than the lute, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was kind of a, a sort of six course, which course is like uh, they'll have two strings right next to each other to make up a course. Mm-hmm. And um, six strings, you know, like a guitar, but tuned like a lute. And uh, this was the kind of main plucked string instrument in Spain, um, really kind of everywhere else. The lute was uh, kind of the main instrument. But yeah, so um, yeah, let's just let's just check it out. So this excerpt from uh, Luis de Narvaez, Canción del Emperador. So we just heard uh, Cancion del Emperador by uh, Narvaez, and we're going to move on to an excerpt from John Dowland, the Frog Galliard. Um, Dowland lived from 1563 to 1626, and uh, yeah, John, this is your pick. Do you want to take this one? Uh, sure. I I um, I like this tune a lot. You know, I don't even think I know the... Uh the voice version of the now oh now I needs must part I yeah. must have heard that before but I, I can't recall anyway it, it works really well as a as a piece for solo lute or in this case guitar mm-hmm. and um, the the thing that struck me about listening to this recording was uh, you know when it, it has this format where you kind of play the melody unadorned as it were and um, and then it successively has more and more stuff going on. It's kind of like little variations on each segment of the melody. Yeah. And so it's got the first one has kind of, I guess, 16th notes maybe. And then there's a segment of triplet kind of uh, divisions of the beat. 
Yeah. So what, one of the things that attracted me to the piece was the rhythmic variety that he's choosing. I thought it was just really fun to play. And I love the fact that it, it, it bounces so well. You know, it's got this really mm-hmm. great bounce, you know, which I believe is why it's called the Frog Galliard. So, <laughs> I was so the, artic- the articulation that I'm using is sort of a, a sort of representation of the idea of, a, of the jumping, the hopping of a, of a frog. Right. Um, the the other thing that struck me was that uh, you must have had to choose your initial tempo very carefully because um, it would be easy to play that main theme part a little too fast and then realize that it's too fast when it's too late. <laughs> right, right. Um, I, I don't remember, like, deciding on the tempo. I, I just remember wanting it to swing a very specific... I wanted to feel it a certain way, which was it's to me like the piece is sort of the, the, the basic groove, which is how I often think of um, Renaissance music, dance Renaissance music. I try to find the basic groove of, of, you know, how, how does this underneath swing? And so that the phrasings all make sense. Cause I, I kind of believe that, I mean, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but it seems to me that, the composers sort of write around a, a basic idea again, similar to like what a rock or a, or a, a folk player would do like a basic groove. And then you use that for variations, improvisation, you know? Mm-hmm. And so this one is, you know, one, two and three, one two, and three. One, and I just wanted mm-hmm. to feel that fully all the time. And, uh, and that's, that's how I, sort of chose the tempo, but I didn't choose it with a metronome mark. It was more just right, a, right. a feel. Yeah, it's a certain feel. Well, yeah. it would be important to hear that um, beat all the time since it is ostensibly dance music. And uh, yeah. I, I uh, still, shared still a couple of videos. You stretch with... it, you know? Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, it's still stretchable. You can still stretch things, which is really the, yeah. the, the fun of, of playing this music. You can still kind of play around with the rhythms and slightly bend them um, and yet still it sounds like you're playing in time. If you put a metronome to it, it's not completely to the metronome, but it still kind of feels that it does because the bending uh, corresponds more or less to the phrasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was about to say, I uh, yesterday shared a couple of videos with Tony in advance of this of um, people doing galliards. They're dancing the galliard. Uh, you know, people oh, oh, yeah get dressed up in 16th century costume and, and uh, dance the galliard. And this, uh, the frog actually kind of makes sense. The galliard is a jumping dance. There's a lot of hopping and kicking and jumping. Mm-hmm. And it, it looks very active. I, I'll never forget, there was, I was in a master class in 1990 at this thing up in Toronto, and it was with uh, Nicholas Galusis. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody was playing a galliard. And he asked the kid, do you know what a galliard is? And the guy's, well, I don't know what a galliard is. So uh, Galusis got up there and danced a galliard. Oh, wow. Uh, well, he <laughs> nice. tried. And he was, I, I understand that he lost a lot of weight, but back then he was really big. And so, <laughs> Nick is a it, great guy. First class yeah, yeah. I ever took was with Nicholas. Yeah, he was really nice and uh, really knowledgeable and everything. But yeah. it was it was memorable to see him get up there and uh, do these jumps and hops and stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, I, remember, I remember seeing Bream play in New York. It was one of the last concerts he did here. I think he only played maybe two times after that or maybe one time after that, but he played in 96. And he was having a, a hell of a time um, 
technically playing, but his rhythm, his grooves were so beautifully fat and, mm. and you know, uh, punchy. And it was so compelling. It really made a big impression on me. And, uh, I mean, it, it, the, the, the Galliard, the, the kind of the feel was certainly influenced, certainly influenced by a, a kind of a Julian Bream sort of rhythm. Mm -hmm. He's a, he's a huge influence on me. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Tony, do you have any thing else about this one? No, no, that's, that's, that covers it, man. Let's check this out. Um, excerpt, excerpt from the Frog Galliard of John Dowland. Okay, we just heard the Frog Galliard of John Dowland, and uh, we're going to move on to another piece of John Dowland that's on the album, um, his Lacrimae Pavan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is such an uh, such an awesome piece. Uh, it was it was kind of, uh, had really wide-ranging popularity, you know, back in the day, um, back in the late, uh, late 16th century, uh, to where Dowland himself would... Uh, end up doing different versions of this piece. Um, the song version is Flow My Tears. He also did uh, a set of seven pavans for viol consort, uh, lacrime pavans, um, different kind of versions of this tune. Um, that's a beautiful piece to listen to from beginning to end. I kind of think of that piece as almost like the first string quartet or something. I mean, I know it's not a quartet, but you know, you have this um, piece for a, you know, same, similar group of instruments mm -hmm. and uh, multi multiple movements, you know, it's a stretch to call it, but I kind of think of it that way. Um, yeah, I think it, it is originally for four parts and it's a real concert, is it not? Yeah. I thought it was. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, but is it four parts or five? I think it might be five. Oh, I don't know. But um, I know other composers did their own versions of this, like William Byrd did a version. And um, even into the 20th century, you know, uh, Benjamin Britten did a piece based on this piece. And yeah, so um, yeah, man. But, uh, why'd you pick this piece? Well, um, I mean, this, this piece is the, my favorite on the album. Uh in it's uh, my favorite because I, I just love the the way Dallin varies it, um, and I had a hell of a time figuring out how I was going to play this. It was a, it was actually a piece I hadn't really solidified um, in terms of expression until about a week before I went to record, and I, I was actually going to cut it because I, I didn't feel like I was getting it, and then. Um, what happened was I was playing it and a sort of insight just came to me where I realized that, oh, it's, it's a song. And then what it is afterward is 
the singer takes a break and the lutenist gets an improvisational part and the lutenist is um, a virtuoso, you know? So the way it's interpreted is you have this kind of beautiful stately song-like character and then each variation is bolder and much more kind of um, passionate. And so it's a, it's a trade-off between the vocalist and the instrumentalist. That's how I, that's how I ultimately felt like the con- a, a concept that made sense and it just immediately kind of um, spoke to me when I, when I got that. But before, I thought of it only as a, as a song. So I was like, okay, you have a singer, and then the variation parts, I would try to make them very lyrical, you know? You know, but it was like, no, this doesn't, this doesn't sound. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was like too much of the same uh, way of playing, but yet the music was changing radically. And finally, it hit me that oh, it's changing radically because he's, in my opinion, at least, he's he's seeing it as a different uh, player. You know, it switches, and then it made sense. Yeah, well, that that's a great way to look at it. Um... I had actually not thought of it that way. I mean, yeah, you're right. When you go to this song, I mean, the, my first experience with this was the song Flow My Tears. And um, that's kind of what I have in my head constantly. You know, I know, mm-hmm. the, uh, I know the words. I know that. And, and so I'm, the, the, the sung part is constantly in my head, you know, when I'm hearing this. But what you, how you ended up approaching this, man, it, it does make total sense. Um, so yeah, anything you want to say, John, before we play it? I I was about to say the same thing. That I'd never thought of it that way either, but I, I really like that approach. That's that's cool. And you can hear it in the recording too. Uh, yeah, it really, right. It sounds great. I mean, their parts are so lyrical and beautiful and, and uh but it, it sounds free and spontaneous the way a, an instrumentalist uh who's used to improvising uh would do. Right. Yeah. So. Okay, well let's check it out. Uh did you, I'm sorry, do you want to say something? No, no. Okay, so let's check it out. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Lacrimé Pavan of John Dallin. We just heard the Lacrimé Pavan of John Dowland, and uh, we're going to move on to a piece by Francesco da Milano, uh, La Campagna, and Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of background on him. He was born 1497, died 1543, 
near Milan in a town called Monza. Um, and uh, he was, you know, of his time of around uh, uh, turn of the 16th century, a little bit later, um, very famous uh, lutenist and composer of lute uh, music during his time. And uh, yeah, what drew you to this particular piece? Um, well, I, uh, there were two pieces on the, on, with, uh, Damilano, the Richard Carr, which is a, a tiny little one, but so gorgeous and so purely, um, conceived. I mean, it's, it's just such great voice leading. And then this one, which is a bigger and more virtuoso one. And it, it was what I was saying before, just the idea of sort of a give and take between the virtuoso and the more delicate you know, so this one had a little bit more virtuoso playing in it, um, and is a little bit more exciting. And then also, um, I just think the writing is is completely inspired. It's fantastic writing. I mean, and the voice leading is is, is beautiful. I, I was very, I, I, in general, I'm very drawn to Damala. I think his music is at very high quality. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there's this one part in the excerpt that I'm going to play where um, he has this line accompanied with. You know, so these very simple chords that just sort of rises and rises and rises, and sort of while it's doing it, gets sort of quieter and quieter. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, man, just this sublimely beautiful line in this uh, piece. I don't know. I was just yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, a lot of times the lute players. I mean, in in terms of like my conception of of playing the music, not this is just kind of a, one of a, one of many guidelines that get broken but um damilano it seems like what he does is he starts kind of eliminating lower tones and uh getting rid of thicker textures and that's sort of an indication of uh the the dynamic gradually coming down as well so if you follow the way the the music is written and you see like thicker chords or you know large basses and that sort of thing it seems like he's indicating more of a a forte or you know uh, more bolder statements and then as he thins out the texture it's like if, if you can also thin out the dynamic it seems to match really well it seems to sort of match with the idea of the, of the composition which is basically all i ever try to do i just try to match you know my playing with what the composition is doing it's really it yeah well i mean you, you really get this uh sense of movement with that line it's really striking you get this strong sense of ascent you know that it's ascending sort of, it's sort of disappears into the clouds in exactly a way. I like that. exactly yeah, I like- yeah yeah awesome john anything you want to say yeah i was just wondering you may not uh if you haven't listened to it in a while, you may not recall. I'm not sure, but it sounded like there were a few passages in there that we, where you're running scales, and I'm trying really hard to hear whether they're like fingered in such a way as always to be crossing strings, or whether you just have incredibly smooth connections between notes on the same string. They, they, everything sounded so perfectly joined. And, it's uh, a combination of a lot of things. It's it's crossing strings. Um, it's sometimes playing the notes on the same string, adding slurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of deciding on the fingering for the loop pieces, I, I actually don't usually follow what the loop players would normally do because it's understood, at any, at, for me at least, it's understood that if you're playing lute, it's got so much more resonance than a guitar 
that the, a, a more straight ahead fingering is going to have a little bit more on a, on a normal guitar would be probably closer to slurs or crossing strings. Mm-hmm. So I tend to, in this music, I tend to use a little bit of both. But, you know, that depends. It depends on the piece. It depends on the kind of mood I'm going for. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's it's not good to have cross strings because the mood has to be bolder, and the cross string sort of washes it out. Sometimes yeah. I want it to flow uh, like a piano with the pedal down, so it'll be, I'll choose fingerings that's more close to that. But it totally depends on the situation and uh, and the phrase at hand. Okay. All right. All right, let's check it out. Um, La Campagna by Francesco da Milano. That was La Campagna by Francesco da Milano. And uh, we're going to move to the next excerpt, another one of uh, my choices, Canarios by Francisco Guerrao. I guess. <laughs> Guarro. Yeah, I guess. Guarro. Yeah, Guarro. Okay. Oh, he's French. Um, Is he, he's Spanish? He's Spanish, so but yeah, I think it would it's be, pronounced Guarro. Seems like Gu- it should Guarro. be Get Out. Yeah, maybe. Get Out is how I would pronounce it myself. But it doesn't matter. Yeah, so whatever. (laughs) He's not going to come call us on it. (laughs) Um, So he lived from 1649 to 1717, a little bit later than uh, these guys. Uh, We're talking uh, Baroque era now. Yeah, um, Baroque Baroque guitar pieces. Yeah, yeah, Baroque guitar. Um, And this is, you know, the... uh, less popular version of Canarias. So the one that you, that you always hear is the Gaspar Sanz version. Right. Uh, so what made you decide to play this one? Well, um, yeah, I like, I like Sanz's music a lot, but it's sort of been done. Uh, and I, I found out about, uh, Get Out's music, you know, I, I, I read some of this stuff, I saw some transcriptions by Emilio Pujol, and uh, most of the time with Sanz's music, um, they're ve- the short pieces are very short, you know, even the fugues are like a page long, you know, 
But with his music, with uh, this guy's music, it would be pages and pages of, you know, variations. Um, now, the Canarios, I think, was only like two pages, but I just thought it was really inventive and beautiful and, you know, different than what most people would hear. I just thought people should hear it because it's a, it's a great little piece. This one and the Marionis, they're, they're lovely pieces. Mm-hmm. Marionis is now getting played a little bit more. Um, see a lot of recordings of that now. Um, but, you know, at the time, I, I don't think I ever heard his music recorded ever. Yeah, well, this is the first piece I've heard of of this mm-hmm. composer. Um, Same here. And, uh, you know, this Canarios, I don't know, do you, do either of you know, is Gaspar Sanz, was he the original Canarios, or was his just a version as well? I thought it was a folk song of some sort that uh, these guys are setting... In their own ways, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah, I think it's a dance. I think it's a dance okay. from the Canary Islands. That's what I think it, it comes okay. from, and, and it's, a, it's a form. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so uh, this is another thing um, that a lot of composers, a, a theme, have taken and done things with. Um, another more recent example. I think it's a three, four, a three, four, six, eight, a three, four, six, eight dance. One of the the almost early Latin American dances, really, you know, the idea of three, four, and six, eight sharing mm-hmm. the, the, um, you know, the time. And that's what happens in this piece. The phrases sometimes are in six, sometimes they're in three. Yeah. Hemiola, man. Yeah, Hemiola. That's so the right. Old, the old, exactly. The old, the old that sort of exactly. thing. Um, and uh, you can, we can hear a more recent, even, adaptation of this in uh, Joaquin Marigo's Fantasia para un gentil hombre. Yeah, um, last moment. That yeah. was the first place I ever heard it. Yeah, well, the, yeah. the first one I ever heard was Gaspar Sanz's version. But, um, yeah, John, anything about this one? No. Okay. No, I like it. Let's listen. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice tune. So, yeah, let's check this out. Um, Canarios by Francisco Get out. Get out. (laughs) I I say that. (laughs) Whatever you say, say it with confidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you can just totally butcher the thing, but just say it like you mean it. We just heard Canarios by Francisco Gui Real. <laughs> <laughs> did that sound uh, confident enough? Very Spanish. It did not sound confident enough. <laughs> oh, man. It had that questioning uh, aspect. Uh, I did. The end You're, right. You're right. Um, <laughs> so we're going to move on to um, a piece by Santiago de Murcia 
Folios Gallegas. Yeah. This is one of yours, John. Um, he, a uh, little bit of background again, he was born 1673, died 1739, a kind of a contemporary of uh, Antonio Vivaldi, I would say, um, except Spanish, not Italian. Um, and I, I read one thing um, that I just thought was kind of funny. Um, in his uh, printed collection of music, Resumen de Acompanar, he refers to himself as the master of guitar to the Spanish queen, Maria Luisa Gabriela de Savoy. I just wish I could have like a business card that was that cool. <laughs> That'd be sweet. <laughs> um, so, John, yeah, you want to Oh, yeah, I, I just thought this was a cool piece because of um, the, you know, it's got this bass note that keeps being uh, articulated over and over and over again, like almost always right on the beats, almost always the same bass note all the way through the thing. And of course that calls to mind peasant music, folk music, whatever you might um, want to call it. But it's in the liner notes that David Nadal wrote here, he says uh, rustic. And so um, I, I hadn't yeah, read yeah. the notes until just now, but um, I, I like that kind of, there are a number of pieces from that era for, it seems like there was one in the Frederick node anthology also that had the uh, continuously repeated same bass notes while other melodies were going on above it. And I, I've always thought those were fun to play. Yeah. I mean, this is an, this is a really interesting example of Baroque music, which sounds like Irish music. <laughs> yeah. right. It really does sound like Irish music, you know, and there is a, there is a, um, the whole black Irish, uh, you know, the, the Spaniards that went to Spain or excuse me, the Spaniards that went to Ireland. Um, and if you compare the North, uh, this, this, the folius um, is, the, the Galeas the, the, is the area of Spain, the north of Spain. And if you go up there and listen to the folk music, it sounds a lot like Irish music. Hmm. And uh, I don't know if the Irish influenced them or if they influenced the Irish, but there's definitely a tie somehow between the uh, the northern Spanish and the, uh, the Irish music. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. I've never heard that before. Yeah, and I mean the fact that the the bass—it's almost all fifths in the bass. You know, a lot of fifths. You know, it's almost like bagpipe music. Yes, that's what that's what drew me to it. I was like, wow, this is such a weird, unusual Spanish piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's got almost all the one note, and then occasionally the fifth. And there's one other note thrown in there that I'm not sure. Maybe the fourth a scale degree. I, I can't remember. Yeah, I think uh, it's just now. basically a one, four, five. I mean, yeah. you know, here and there. I mean, but most of the time it's on, it's just one for, mm-hmm. you know, many, many measures. Got the drone working. Right. Yeah. Really minimal. Yeah. You can really hear the um, folk music connection like you were talking about in this one. Um, you could mm-hmm. almost hear a sort of dance master maybe playing this just kind of ad nauseum, you know? Yeah. Like with the, the drum, you know, bomb, bomb hitting the downbeats every time mm-hmm. people yeah. dancing around the downbeats. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's how I thought of it. Yeah, awesome. Okay. Yeah, let's well let's hear. check it out. Folios Gallegas by Santiago de Murcia.
just heard Folios Gallegas by Santiago de Murcia, and we're going to move uh, to a piece of Johann Sebastian Bach, um, his Prelude Fugue Allegro, uh, BWV 998, and uh, this piece, uh, I'm going to let uh, you, John, take the, the first excerpt here, but I wanted to say that this is a piece I, I know I've done on the show at least once. I know I mm-hmm. um, I talked about it on the first episode when we did the album of uh, um, Paul Galbraith, mm-hmm. and uh, this is definitely my desert island piece. I mean, this is like <laughs> the piece if That's I had one, one piece to listen to for the rest of my life, this would be it. And um, uh, yeah, we're going to start with an excerpt from the Prelude, and uh, John, I'll just let you take this one. Yeah, I, I would agree about that. It's one of my favorite pieces by Bach, and uh, it's it's so beautiful. And uh, it's you know it's this to me would be like the virtuoso piece of the album. Mm-hmm. Um, this and the Vice, I would say you're right. Right, the Vice. Um, but it's um, I chose an excerpt from the Prelude just since Tony's was from the Fugue, um, and uh, I really like this part of it. it's um, toward the end of the prelude and I like it because it's got this um, this moment where Bach switches from the single note texture to having chords with bass notes or maybe just dyads or something in the upper voice with bass mm-hmm. notes and uh, it's a, a nice change of texture it's it's something he does in prelude in other preludes I can think of as well but uh, mm-hmm. and then he has the pedal tone and some unusual harmonies and just the, the general, I like the way he wraps up his preludes like that. Yeah, I know. It's a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous piece. Yeah. um, One thing I love about this excerpt about the very end is uh, this kind of monumental uh, suspension figure at the last cadence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh yeah. 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 Majestic monumental um which which actually is something i didn't get to talk about before because in um i really like uh, galbraith's recording of this but one thing i don't like about galbraith's recording is that he'll do this thing he does this every time he does a, a, a prelude going into a fugue is that he'll just go directly without break from the prelude into the fugue and so what he did with this is he omitted that completely <laughs> oh, okay and he just goes right into the fugue and uh, a lot of times in other pieces, I think it worked. But in this one, you know, removing that that monument of, of a moment, it was yeah. it bothered me. But <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but you uh, can just like splice it in there. You can sing the suspension. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, what, I mean, the, the Prelude Lego is, is a very unique piece in uh, out of all his works because, you know, we all know that he writes ton. He wrote tons of preludes and fugues, but there's only one prelude fugue in Allegro, and it's a very interesting piece. I mean, I, I played it at, that, at this point. I played it probably about ten years, and, and gradually over time got more and more understanding as to what I was dealing with. But um, the fact that it's in E flat with the three flats was a very <laughs> special thing for Bach. It was representative of the Trinity. Uh, some people thought, think that, you know, he kind of thought as uh, the three flats as sort of the tears of Christ on the cross. I mean, there's a lot of depth 
when he's writing in E flat or if he's writing in C minor. Um, and then the other thing about um, the, the 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 idea of the three parts again is the the, the idea of three being such a, a big deal. And so Prelude, Fugue, and Allegro, not just Prelude and Fugue, mm-hmm. because we're dealing with three, the Trinity. You know, so when people have asked me about this piece, I mean, it to me, it's always very obvious. It, to, it, to me, it seems obvious that it's very much a spiritual um, kind of piece. And someone told me that the fugue is based on a chorale melody. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, it would make sense if that was true. Yeah, that's what I've heard, too. I, I have no idea what chorale melody it would be, but... Um, I don't either. What do you think, um, Kevin, of the claim that these pieces, this piece and other lute pieces were not written for lute at all, but were written for Lauten work? Yeah, I mean, it seems probable that you know he conceived it on a keyboard and then said okay well you know I, I, if you loop players can play it wonderful you know but i don't think he knew the mechanics of the loot i mean i don't even think loop players know the mechanics of the loot until after a couple of years of playing it i mean it's such a complicated right, thing, right. you know um so probably he just he conceived of it and, and thought you know it'd be great if this could be played on the loot it'd be it'd be wonderful you know a lot of the loot suites don't work particularly well on the lute. It's ironic um, that the tuning is very odd. You know, uh, the, the keys for, for the lute suites don't work so well for the tuning of the lute itself. And they have to make a lot of adjustments to their tuning to make that stuff work. So it seems like Bach probably just conceived it on the keyboard and certainly feels like a keyboard piece. Yeah, well, I mean, even the guitar, you know, this key of E flat, I mean, you couldn't probably couldn't have a worse key for guitar than than E flat. So, you know, we have to play yeah. it in D. I mean, I guess if we, you know, tune down to D and then tune all the strings down a half step, you know, we'd be playing the right well, key. Well, I did. I actually tuned down to D and then just capoed it on the first fret because I really wanted it to be an E flat. Hmm. Oh, you did? So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I didn't realize that. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I understand historically that their E flat would have been closer to D, but there's something really magical about playing in E flat on the guitar. There's something very beautiful. In fact, that was one of the things about the re- that's one of the things about the recording um, we haven't talked about is the fact that I use a lot of capo um, on the recording, and I also use um, for the Baroque guitar music. I'm using um, a third string where the sixth string is. So and the third string is tuned to A, which would normally be on the second fret of the third string. So I have a on on some pieces Crazy. I don't even have a sixth string tuned low. It's it's tuned it's a third string on the sixth string. And all of this changes the sound of the guitar. And Bonnie, when I would when I got ready for the Baroque guitar pieces, you know, this this one was just capoed, like I said, she was used to that. But when I switched to the Baroque guitar pieces, it changed the resonance of the guitar so much she actually thought I switched guitars. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting I've I've never seen anybody do that I mean how did you arrive at putting a third string where the sixth string was And well I was you know I at the time I was just getting uh, listening to a lot of Baroque guitar and there's something really magical about having that one string high in, in the where the thumb is and um for the Baroque guitar pieces, I um, chose fingerings that would incorporate that 
So there's some fingerings, there's some kind of textures in the fingerings of the Baroque guitar pieces that would be impossible to play in standard tuning. And I thought that was really neat, you know. And then, of course, I forgot how to do all that because when I played in concert, I couldn't sit there and put a string on the guitar. So I had to, to get it into standard tuning. But for the recording, I thought, you know what, let me see if I could at least sort of imitate um, what the Baroque guitarists do, which is almost like more like what a ukulele player would do. Hmm. Yeah, really interesting. That's pretty cool. I, yeah. I'd like yeah, just for just for color, it was just a kind of a color idea, and it, and it turned out nicely. It, and it was really nice in in as a player just to kind of rediscover the guitar with such a slightly different tuning, but very radical in terms of how you conceive the instrument. You know, you're right about the sound of an E flat. I mean, uh, I I actually made in my five songs of emily dickinson i wrote the fifth song in the key of e flat just uh-huh. because of i love the sound of an e flat chord on yeah. the guitar I tune the right. e string down to e flat and then the rest of the strings i just kept the same way but i actually i kind of stole that from dominic argento because he does that there's a moment in one of the first i think the very first song from letters from composers yeah i played has, that uh-huh he has a section where he's doing these E flat chords in second inversion with the B flat on the bottom. And mm-hmm. it's so resonant and beautiful that I thought, man, I'm going to, I want to make a chord like that too. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know how tendencies of tuning come into play, but you know, D everybody knows and it's so obvious and, and used so much. And of course the rest of the strings also work in the key of D, uh, you know, D major or D minor sort of with, you know, the B string and everything. But, um, you know, soar tune the six string up to F for some pieces. For some reason that never really caught on just a few pieces like the Brower second movement of the Sonata from 1991. He does it, but that's not really caught on. And then the idea of tuning to E flat, which is just a step down. I mean, it seems like more people would, play around with it but the only person i know that's done that um in his compositions is uh i mean other than who you mentioned is uh, roland Dienz. he does that sometimes and he mentioned to me he's like yeah. oh i love the sound of you know the in-between yeah. tones you know e flat and, and you know to have the a string to a flat and he would do that sort of thing and, and it's obviously you know uh it's an obvious thing to, to consider it's just that nobody's been doing it Maybe and, it'll and catch up. Having this discussion, yeah, I'm sure Argento actually doesn't tune the E down. He just plays the chords using the uh, B flat, E flat, and G on five, four, and three uh, strings. Okay, I, yeah. I decided to tune it down because I really wanted the low E flat, and it sounds great because the third of the chord, the G, is open string, and so it sounds very right. resonant. Yeah, yeah. Takamitsu, he also does that sometimes. E flat in the bass sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, let's let's uh, hear this first. Uh, what are we talking about again? Yeah, exactly. Before we <laughs> let's hear this uh, the uh, prelude from the Prelude Fugue in Allegro BWV nine nine eight, really in E flat major.
Okay, we just heard the prelude from uh, JS Box, Prelude Fugue and Allegro, and we're going to move on to the second part of that piece, the fugue. Um, and this is one of my choices. This fugue is really, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful fugues that Bach wrote ever, period. Yeah, uh, it's for any, Yeah, for any instrument. And un- unfortunately, it's it's kind of relegated to guitar players and not a lot of people outside of the guitar world really know about this fugue. Not, I mean, some, uh, Baroque specialty players are starting to play it on Lauten work and stuff now, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's really been, you know, a guitar thing. And it's a real shame that, that most people don't know about this fugue. Um, yeah, I think most of the music world is exactly the opposite of guitarists. Guitarists are always looking at keyboard music and cello music to steal. And, you know, a keyboard player sees a piece written for a living and says, oh, okay, that's not for me. And they just go to the next great keyboard piece by Bass Bach. You know, there's so many. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this fugue, um, I think part of the beauty of this fugue and part of what makes it so unusual is I'm going to play this excerpt from. Uh, around the middle of the piece where he has these just really long episodic chains of sequences. Yeah. Just, just, you know, one sequence after another, after another. And a a lot of times the subject will be in the bass voice or sort of broken up in the bass, but just these chains upon chains upon chains of, of uh, these sequences and these episodes. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, this, this really, I think is, you know, one of one of his most unusual and beautiful fugues because of these extended episodes. Now, if you don't know what an episode is, um, you can go back to All the Cruel Parts number 12, The Fugue Show. I sort of explain what it is, <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to explain it now. But um, yeah, yeah. What do you think of this piece, Kevin? You know, this fugue particularly, uh, like, it's a, another unusual aspect of this uh, piece, the Prelude Fugue Allegro, is is the fact that you have a, this fugue is a da capo fugue. Very rare in Bach to have a da capo fugue. Usually, he gives you the the theme, he gives you the you know development of the theme, which is gorgeous, and then it ends. But this piece, it's the theme, and then it develops, and then it returns. And um, the uh, the idea for me is the return is a very important concept because you know it's it's again this representative of, of the trinity uh you know the, he's home he goes out uh similar to the like i was saying the the prodigal son in in the bible he goes out into the world it's torturous out there and then he returns and the return is glorious you know and, it, and it, it's just so it's so magical when people study with me i really make a big deal out of that you know the idea of the return it's 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 not not to you know, blow it out of proportion, but it's, it's magical. It's, it, it needs to be really tasted, you know, and it's just, it's just a remarkable moment in, in his, uh, his writing. Yeah. I, I love your uh, analogy of the prodigal son story. I've never heard anybody, um, put it that way, you know, but, uh, it really kind of gives a, a nice deep story aspect to this piece that I've never really considered before. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's check it out. Um, this uh, excerpt from the Fugue, from the 
Prelude Fugue and Allegro of BWV 998. just heard the fugue from the prelude fugue and allegro bwv 998 and we're going to move on to the third part of the triptych the allegro and mm-hmm. uh john this is your pick and so yeah what do you think of this yeah th- th- i i love it i mean this whole movement is excellent it's um it's always amazing to me it, it, it's one of those pieces I'm, I'm like so excited when i see somebody play it live i'm, I'm just sitting there thinking man is he going to get it is he going to get through it and then they just, like if they nail the a section like oh man is he going to take the repeat <laughs> does he dare do it again um it's it's just like this um wild ride it's so yeah, fast, yeah. so many notes and um my one enduring memory of it really is from when i was in grad school at texas and at the same time there at grad school was Andrew Zone. Mm-hmm. And Andrew was playing this piece. And I remember one day in the practice room, I saw him solfege the entire thing at tempo. <laughs> and uh, I w- I'd never been so blown away by something. <laughs> a French solfege? Yeah, well, you know, tita, whatever it is. I, I'm, I can't solfege really. But, I mean, he, he solfeged every note of the upper line. While yeah, he was yeah. playing it at the same time. He was playing it and solfeging at once. Yeah, and, that's uh, a good sign. <laughs> it was phenomenal. I mean, Andrew's an incredible musician. Everyone, we all know that, but uh, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but uh, you play this really well, too. And I, I thought maybe we'd just play the uh, the B section on the second time so you hear the big finale of it, you know. So Yeah, what, sure, sure. You know, what's interesting about the Prelude Allegro and as I was getting ready to record it, what I what I kind of realized is the prelude in terms of the 
the sort of the way it, it it's each movement has a different kind of swing to it, you know, and the prelude is sort of circular in my mind. It's very circular. The the phrasing is very circular. The way I play it and the the, the way I'm I'm influencing the tempo is is sort of push and pull. Very, it's got this kind of flowing circular effect. The fugue is much more straight line, you know. It still flows, but it's it's sort of the groove is much more square and um, walking, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, and for me, the the allegro is sort of the combination of the two, because it has this circular motion, but at the same time, it's got this nice downbeat all the time, you know. So it's circular, but it's also got the fugue, um, almost like underneath a nice walking. Um, yeah, a nice walking sort of tempo to it. Now, it doesn't sound like I'm walking, but if you listen to the bass line, it's not rushed, you know? It's it's uh, it's got a, a mix of those two curves and straight straight lines. Cool. All right. Well, let's check it out. The uh, the Allegro from Jazzbox Prelude Fugue and Allegro. Was the Allegro from J.S. Bach, the uh, Prelude Fugue and Allegro, BWV 998, and E-flat major. And uh, we're going to move to our last excerpt, um, an excerpt from the Alternatum of uh, Silvius Leopold Weiss from his uh, Prelude, Courant, and Alternatum. I, I assume you picked this as sort of a companion to uh, the Prelude Fugue and Allegro, uh, yeah, and funny enough, the timing came out to be exactly the same. When yeah, you look gross. at the Prelude Fugue Allegro and then the, and then the Prelude uh, Courant and Alternatum, it, it's exactly the same amount of minutes and yeah. seconds. <laughs> what, what, oh, well, I didn't even notice that. Wow. Um, I didn't that's either, crazy. Uh, yeah, you know, I didn't this... plan that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think, okay, what tempo is going to, you know... Yeah, Bonnie was sitting there with a like a clip track. She's like, "I'm sorry, Kevin, that was one second too too long. And <laughs> right, we gotta right. do it again." Um, yeah, this uh, a little background on Vice because I don't think we've ever done a piece of his on this show yet. Um, he was born 1687, died 1750. So you know, died at the same year that Bach. He was a few years younger than Bach was. Um, he apparently met J.S. Bach through Bach's son Wilhelm. Friedrich and uh, 
these two guys, I think, um, from what I've read, had a kind of mutual respect for one another. Vice was uh, kind of the preeminent lutenist of his day in the Baroque period. Very um, accomplished player, very prolific uh, composer. I mean, I think he composed something like 800 pieces for lute, something like that. Wow, okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I read something that was pretty um, interesting. Uh, apparently when, uh, you know, shortly after vice met Bach, he, he actually challenged Bach to an improvisation competition, basically. Hmm. Um, and this is what they did. This was kind of like the extreme sport for musicians back in the, (laughs) back in the 18th century was the, were these improvisation competitions of which J.S. Bach was very famous, um, as, Hmm. uh, uh, an amazing improviser. And uh, I actually read a, a firsthand account um, of one of these um, by a guy named Johann Friedrich Reichardt. He said, anyone who knows how dif- difficult it is to play harmonic modulations and good counterpoint on the lute will be surprised and full of disbelief to hear from eyewitnesses that Weiss, the great lutenist, challenged J.S. Bach, the great harpsichordist and organist, at playing fantasies and fugues. And I can just imagine, I mean, what an awesome competition this would have been <laughs> to see um, these two masters just sort of going back and forth. Um, Absolutely. Improvising. But, uh, you know, one thing I like about this piece is uh, I'm going to play an excerpt from uh, towards the end of the piece and, um, you know, Vice's counterpoint is it's different than box it, to me, to my ears. It's, um, it's a very beautiful, very, very elegant, um, almost has a, a regal quality to it. Um, mm-hmm. and it sounds a bit, you know, these are just my own words. It sounds a bit softer than box. Like box has a little bit harder of an edge to it. Um, mm. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? What, what drew you besides the, you know, the obvious parallels to the Prelude Fugue and Allegro, you know, what, what drew you to this particular piece of vice? Um, you know, I read this piece. There was a collection of music uh, published by um, Orfe Editions um, called the Moscow Vice Manuscript. And uh, this piece was labeled in that book. It was labeled as a scherzo. But then there was another book, I think, by Mel Bay, I think it was David Grimes had transcribed it, and he called it Alternatum, and I, I preferred that title. I don't even know what that means, I, and uh, but I didn't I feel like either. it was a scherzo. I, <laughs> I didn't feel like it was a scherzo. I felt like it was much more painful and much more lyrical. I, I didn't think it was like a funny dance. I mean, I guess you could play it that way, but it didn't seem to uh to be that way into my ear yeah and i just i just thought you know it just on the you know vice's music is very difficult on the guitar and a lot of it i don't like to play because i just it just doesn't work very well technically it's funny the keyboard works by bach in some ways work better on the guitar than the loop pieces by vice because the tuning the the lute tuning i mean he takes advantage of the lute tuning and the lute tuning is so radically different from from the guitar tuning so it's it's actually a lot of his music is very uncomfortable to play, but this piece worked 
perfectly beautifully and really sounded like a guitar piece, which is really what I was looking for. I was looking for pieces that would that would work on the guitar. I mean, it's difficult, but but it, it the guitar sounds good, and that was a very important idea throughout the whole album. You know, I didn't want to just play transcriptions you know that like a keyboard work that sort of works but you know it sounds better on the keyboard i wanted to play pieces that really sounded good on the guitar yeah. and this is one of them yeah and i just thought also it was a great way to end the album i could imagine people like falling asleep but i didn't want to give them something punchy at the end. I wanted, <laughs> yeah. yeah i didn't want to wake anybody up toward the end <laughs> yeah well you know i had the same feeling i thought this was a great way to end this podcast you know uh, which is part of the reason why i chose an excerpt from the end so it could you know sort of end but um yeah yeah let's any john anything you want to say about this oh i'm i'm good man all right awesome <laughs> <laughs> so um let's listen to this the uh, alternatum from the prelude courant and alternatum of sylvius leopold weiss that is it um thanks a bunch kevin for coming back on the show it was awesome to have you thank on again. you guys it was really fun it was really really enjoyable and i hadn't heard this stuff in a long time so it's fun to talk about it again yeah yeah anything you want to pimp or plug or talk about not really you know you could follow me on youtube i'm mostly doing videos nowadays i'm not really interested as much as i used to be in audio recording i'm much more interested in videos and I'm planning on doing more of those as time goes on. Um, but right now I'm, I'm sort of in practice mode, so I'm not really doing a lot of recording right now. I was reading on your website and looking at that you give uh, webcam lessons. And I, mm -hmm. I know a few people who have started doing this. How, how is that going for you? I mean, does that seem like a 
like a great opportunity or is it just convenient or what? I mean, uh, yeah, I, you know, I was looking for ways to teach more people and I have other ideas regarding, uh, you know, working with video and teaching through video, but, uh, it seemed like, you know, the, the quality of Skype streaming nowadays is quite good. And, uh, I can, I've been teaching a long time the guitar, I mean, since I was 13. So, I mean, I can tell, even if the sound quality isn't perfect, I can pretty much tell what people need to be working on yes. and how they're sounding. And, and um, so I just thought, well, let's try it and see how it goes. Um, but uh, it's been good. I, I have a few students that have been with me a few years. I've never met them in person. Hmm. And uh, a few people have developed quite a bit, I mean, and... Uh, it's been great. And, you know, some people are just in the middle of nowhere and they want to study guitar, but they don't want to be in a car for four hours. Yeah, well, it's great. I mean, in that respect, it becomes quite a bargain to be able to study with someone like you and not have to live in New York and pay that kind of rent, you know? Right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, it, it yeah, really... I, you know, I, I yeah, I, I mean, if, if people are interested, they can contact me about that. Um but, uh, you know, I, I think it's sort of the wave of the future. I think what's going to happen in general is uh, the, the technology is going to infiltrate all music, in, including study, including, you know, the video. Well, we already see how that's changing things um, and downloadable music and all that. But uh, I, I see in the future, you know, a lot of teaching through video. And uh, certainly that's, where, that's what I'm looking toward. And I have a lot of plans for that. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Can you tell us, um, you said you're kind of in practice mode. Can you tell us uh, kind of some stuff you're working on or can you divulge? Yeah, I'm working on, um, I ha I transcribed the, the cello suite in C major um, and uh, I arranged, I mean, it's transcribed, but I but I arranged, I, put a, I added a lot of um, basses and a lot of harmonies. It's sort of an old school arrangement and yet, you know, I'm very sensitive to um, voice leading, so I'm I'm aware that um, you know that has to be uh, it has to sound what I'm, I'm trying to make it sound as much like what I think Bach would have done. Um, I'm sure he would have done a much more brilliant. I, I I'm doing a pale comparison, of course, you know, but uh, but I'm trying to kind of like follow in his footsteps the way he transcribed cello music onto the lute or or violin music onto the keyboard. And uh, so I'm doing that and, and doing some other kind of transcribing work. And um, but I teach so much these days that I haven't I'm not able to practice as much as I would like. But I love the guitar. I love the classical guitar. It's really um, it's really a, a serious addiction. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. You know, all we've talked about so far today. I don't want to hold this out forever, but I've, I just got one more question for you. You know, all all of the repertoire on the CD we just discussed, and then uh, the the videos I've seen of you on on YouTube, and then you're just talking about this practicing. It's all been baroque or earlier. What what sort of repertoire do you like, or do you perform from? I don't know the 20th century or even the 19th century, things like that. Um. You know, as far as the 19th century, I mean, I really admire Soar, but probably because he's closer to sort of a Baroque mentality, you know, the voice leading and all that mm -hmm. stuff. I'm not really into the virtuoso uh, Paganini type of style of playing, although, you know, I mean, Merits when I hear like people play it great, it's like, wow, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. But it's just, it's just, whenever I start looking at the music, I just think, eh, it's not really, it's not really for me. But, you know, yeah. who knows in the future it might be. Um, 
but as far as uh, so yeah, it's like the the classical era, the more pure classical. I really like. Um, and then I, I really enjoy, uh, as I got older, I, I became more and more interested in uh, sort of the older players. Like, uh, I mean, I listen to Segovia constantly, and I, I like the repertoire um, uh, from that era. I, I think for a long time, people were kind of rebelling against it because they were trying to find their own voice. You know, okay, we've heard the Segovia repertoire, now we got to do something else. And that's fine, but I think now we've been removed enough from him i've never met him you know and and you know i don't have any personal recollections of him even growing up i didn't listen to him uh until after he was dead so um so a lot of his work transcriptions and tariga's work and yobet's work um those sorts of things i really enjoy i just think that they had a really fantastic concept of the guitar and it's sort of gotten lost um, the way they finger things, the way they, they uh, the way they fill out transcriptions, it's it's a really beautiful art that is sort of lost, but it's coming back. Um, and then I re- like really, you know, sometimes I really like hardcore contemporary music. You know, like uh, I'm looking at Carter's changes right now, but I don't know if I'll be able to play it um, right away. But I, I, you know, if I play contemporary music, I want it to sound like contemporary music. You know. Gotcha. I like Benjamin Britten. I like, uh, I mean, Takamitsu is sort of like uh, uh, expanded jazz, but, you know, I, I like um, music that is is honest and not trying to be something else. There's a sort of a movement in New York of a lot of composers trying to, uh, trying to imitate, you know, more of a rock thing. So you'll hear a cellist play like a blues or, and this has been going on for the last 20 years. It's not really my interest because I grew up in the tradition, you know, of playing those styles truly, you know. So right. it's like when I hear classical musicians do it, I, I understand where they're coming from. I understand the, the allure of playing something that sounds like jazz or blues or rock, but it's not really – I'm not that interested. If I'm going to listen to rock music, I'll listen to Hendrix, do it right. You yeah. know? <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> cool. Awesome. So, awesome. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, man, again, thanks for coming on. It was uh... – a great talking to you and of course you know uh great listening uh to this cd and uh yeah we'll we'll uh maybe see you another time in the future if you do thanks again thanks again guys you're doing a great job all right thanks kevin hey everybody welcome to this edition of all the cool parts idol this time um, i was sent some music by uh brazilian composer and guitarist frederick carrillo and uh, he sent me several uh, works of his. And the one that I wanted to play is uh, called Rebirth, um, or in Portuguese, Renascer. I think it's how it's said. Um, this caught my ear because it's a little bit different than what you would expect. Um, Frederick, on this track, um, even though he's recorded many pieces and written many pieces for classical guitar, on this track he's playing electric guitar. And um, this is a collaboration between himself, uh, saxophonist Simon Jensen, and electronic artist Bjorn Nyberg. And uh, I'll just read to you this little blurb from their website. It says, In September 2009, the Brazilian classical acoustic electric guitarist and composer Frederick Carrillo visited the jazz flutist Simon Jensen, or probably Jensen, uh, Simon Jensen in his home, uh, Gothenburg, Sweden. Two weeks of jam sessions, musical studies, and intense discussion 
followed, and a lot of experiments were carried out. Two days before Frederick had to leave for his next stop, concerts and workshops in Poland, the duo became a trio together with producer and electronic musician Bjorn Nyberg. Four tunes were recorded on an afternoon in Bjorn's studio, uh, and uh, during the days that followed, he did his magic and produced some very interesting music. So there are actually four tracks on this website. The website is musicalexperiments.com that you can listen to and download. And I'm going to play the first track uh, that's on the website for you, Rebirth. Um, that's a particularly beautiful track uh, for electric guitar, flute, and electronics. Um and you can go to this website, musicalexperiments.com, and it'll point you to the individual websites of Frederick, Simon, and Bjorn, and you can learn more about them. Uh, but without further ado, here is this track composed by Frederick Carrillo, Simon Jensen, and Bjorn Nyberg, Rebirth. <laughs>
Hey, performers, performing ensembles, and composers, All the Cool Parts podcast wants your music for All the Cool Parts Idol. If you're an emerging artist with a good quality recording and you'd like All the Cool Parts podcast to share it with the world, please email sound files and other details to allthecoolparts at gmail.com. Help me share your music with the world. And that is going to do it for All the Cool Parts number 28. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us, and thanks to Kevin Gallagher for coming on the show. Uh, it was a really cool talk, um, and also always thanks to Dr. Jonathan Culp, our good friend, for coming on the show and doing it again. Um, please, I, I encourage all of you, if you like what you heard, go buy Kevin's Laureate CD. You can do so by going to naxos.com. And uh, looking for their Laureate series CDs or just doing a search for his name. I'm sure we'll we'll bring it up. Um, that goes for all the music that we play on here. That's um, always available at, uh, you know, all the online retailers and CD stores. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at allthecoolparts at gmail.com. You can look at the show notes at allthecoolparts.blogspot.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Anthony Landman. And you can check out my website at anthonyjosephlandman.com. And we will see you next time on All the Cool Parts later. Cool Parts Podcast is brought to you by classical guitar luthier Tomas Barobia, maker of the cutting-edge triple-core composite top classical guitar. Powerful volume, world-class tone, and exceptional playability all in one guitar. For more information and free sound samples, visit his website at www.latticeguitar.com.